Section 7 of The Trembling of a Leaf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lilith Brenda. The Trembling of a Leaf by W. Somerset Maugham. Section 7 The Pool. Part 1. When I was introduced to Lawson by Chaplin, the owner of the Hotel Metropole at Apia, I paid no particular attention to him. We were sitting in the lounge over an early cocktail, and I was listening with amusement to the gossip of the island. Chaplin entertained me. He was by profession a mining engineer, and perhaps it was characteristic of him that he had settled in a place where his professional attainments were of no possible value. It was, however, generally reported that he was an extremely clever mining engineer. He was a small man, neither fat nor thin, with black hair, scanty on the crown, turning grey, and a small and tidy moustache. His face, partly from the sun and partly from liquor, was very red. He was but a figurehead for the hotel, though so grandly named but a frame building of two stories was managed by his wife a tall, gaunt Australian of five-and-forty, with an imposing presence and a determined air. The little man, excitable and often tipsy, was terrified of her, and the stranger soon heard of domestic quarrels, in which she used her feast and her foot in order to keep him in subjection. She had been known after a night of drunkenness to confine him for twenty-four hours to his own room, and then he could be seen, afraid to leave his prison, talking somewhat pathetically from his veranda to people on the street below. He was a character, and his reminiscences of a varied life, whether true or not, made him worth listening to. So that when Lawson strode in, I was inclined to resent the interruption. Although not midday, it was clear that he had had enough to drink, but it was without enthusiasm that I yielded to his persistence and accepted his offer of another cocktail. I knew already that Chaplin's hat was weak. The next round, which in common politeness I should be forced to order, would be enough to make him lively, and then Mrs. Chaplin would give me black looks. Nor was there anything attractive in Lawson's appearance. He was a little thin man, with a long, sallow face and a narrow, weak chin, a prominent nose, large and bony, and great shaggy black eyebrows. They gave him a peculiar look. His eyes, very large and very dark, were magnificent. He was jolly, but his jollity did not seem to me sincere. It was on the surface, a mask which he wore to deceive the world, and I suspected that it concealed a mean nature. He was plainly anxious to be thought a good sport, and he was hail fellow well met. But I do not know why. I felt that he was cunning and shifty. He talked a great deal in a raucous voice, and he and Chaplin kept one another's stories of Beano's which had become legendary, stories of wet nights at the English club, of shooting expeditions where an incredible amount of whisky had been consumed, and of John's to Sydney of which their pride was that they could remember nothing from the time they landed till the time they sailed. A pair of drunken swine. But even in their intoxication, for by now, after four cocktails each, neither was sober, there was a great difference between Chaplin, rough and vulgar, and Lawson. Lawson might be drunk, 
but he was certainly a gentleman. At last he got out of his chair a little unsteadily. Well, I'll be getting along home, he said. See you before dinner. Mrs. All right, said Chaplin. Yes. He went out. There was a peculiar note in the monosyllable of his answer, which made me look up. Good chap, said Chaplin flatly, as Lawson went out of the door into the sunshine. One of the best. Pity he drinks. This from Chaplin was an observation not without humour, and when he's drunk he wants to fight people. Is he often drunk? Dead drunk. Three or four days a week. It's the island on it. And Ethel. Who's Ethel? Ethel's his wife, married a half-caste. Old Brefeld's daughter took her away from here. Only thing to do. But she couldn't stand it. And now they're back again. He'll hang himself one of these days. If he don't drink himself to death before. Good chap. Nasty when he's drunk. Chaplin belched loudly. I'll go and put my head under the shower. I oughtn't to have had that last cocktail. It's always the last one that does you in. He looked uncertainly at the staircase as he made up his mind to go to the cubby hole in which was the shower, and then with unnatural seriousness got up. Pay you to cultivate Lawson, he said. A well-read chap. You'd be surprised when he's sober. Clever too. Worth talking to. Chaplin had told me the whole story in these few speeches. When I came in towards evening from a ride along the seashore, Lawson was again in the hotel. He was heavily sunk in one of the cane chairs in the lounge, and he looked at me with glassy eyes. It was plain that he had been drinking all the afternoon. He was torpid, and the look on his face was sullen and vindictive. His glance rested on me for a moment, but I could see that he did not recognize me. Two or three other men were sitting there, shaking dice, and they took no notice of him. His condition was evidently too usual to attract attention. I sat down and began to play. You're a damned sociable lot, said Lawson suddenly. He got out of his chair and waddled with bent knees towards the door. I did not know whether the spectacle was more ridiculous than revolting. When he had gone, one of the men sniggered. Lawson's fairly soused today, he said. If I couldn't carry my liquor better than that, said another, I'd climb on the wagon and stay there. Who would have thought that this wretched object was in his way a romantic figure, or that his life had in it those elements of pity and terror which the theorist tells us are necessary to achieve the effects of tragedy? I did not see him again for two or three days. I was sitting one evening on the first floor of the hotel on a veranda that overlooked the street when Lawson came up and sank into a chair beside me. He was quite sober. He made a casual remark and then, when I had replied somewhat indifferently, added with a laugh which had in it an apologetic tone. I was definitely soused the other day. I did not answer. There was really nothing to say. I pulled away at my pipe in the vain hope of keeping the mosquitoes away and looked at the natives going home from their work. They walked with long steps, slowly, with care and dignity, and the soft patter of their naked feet was strange to hear. Their dark hair, curling or streaked, was often white with lime, and then they had a look of extraordinary distinction. They were tall and finely built, then a gang of Solomon Islanders, indentured labourers, passed by, singing. They were shorter and slighter than the Samoans, coal-black with great hats of fussy hair dyed red. 
Now and then a white man drove past in his buggy or rode into the hotel yard. In the lagoon two or three schooners reflected their grace in the tranquil water. I don't know what there is to do in a place like this except to get sussed, said Lawson at last. Don't you like Samoa? I asked casually for something to say. It's pretty, isn't it? The word he chose seemed so inadequate to describe the unimaginable beauty of the island that I smiled, and smiling I turned to look at him. I was startled by the expression in those fine sober eyes of his, an expression of intolerable anguish. They betrayed a tragic death of emotion of which I should never have thought him capable. But the expression passed away, and he smiled. His smile was simple and a little naive. It changed his face so that I wavered in my first feeling of aversion from him. I was all over the place when I first came out, he said. He was silent for a moment. I went away for good about three years ago, but I came back. He hesitated. My wife wanted to come back. She was born here, you know. Oh, yes. He was silent again, and then hazarded a remark about Robert Louis Stevenson. He asked me if I had been up to Vailima. For some reason, he was making an effort to be agreeable to me. He began to talk of Stevenson's books, and presently the conversation drifted to London. I suppose Convent Garden's still going strong, he said. I think I miss the opera as much as anything here. Have you seen Tristan and Isolde? He asked me the question as though the answer were really important to him, and when I said a little casually, I dare say, that I heard, he seemed pleased. He began to speak of Wagner, not as a musician, but as the plain man who received from him an emotional satisfaction that he could not analyse. I suppose Bayreuth was the place to go really, he said. I never had the money, worse luck. But of course one might do worse than Convent Garden, all the lights and the women dressed up to the nines and the music. The first act of the Valkyrie's all right, isn't it? And the end of Tristan, golly. His eyes were flashing now, and his face was lit up so that he hardly seemed the same man. There was a flush on his sallow, thin cheeks, and I forgot that his voice was harsh and unpleasant. There was even a sudden charm about him. By George, I'd like to be in London tonight. Do you know the Pall Mall restaurant? I used to go there a lot. Piccadilly Circus and the shops all lit up, and the crowd... I think it's stunning to stand there and watch the buses and taxis streaming along as though they'd never stop. And I like the Strand, too. What are those lines about God and Charing Cross? I was taken aback. Thompson's, do you mean? I asked. I quoted them. And when so sad, thou canst not set a cry, and upon thy so sore loss shall shine the traffic of Jacob's ladder, pitched between heaven and Charing Cross. He gave a faint sigh. I've read the hand of heaven. It's a bit of all right. It's generally thought so, I murmured. You don't meet anybody here who's read anything. Do you think it's swank? There was a wistful look on his face, and I thought I divined the feeling that made him come to me. It was a link with a world he regretted, in a life that he would know no more, because not so very long before I had been in the London which he loved. He looked upon me with awe and envy. He had not spoken for five minutes, perhaps, when he broke out with words that startled me by their intensity. I'm fed up, he said. I'm fed up. 
Then why don't you clear out? I asked. His face grew sullen. My lungs are a bit dicky. I couldn't stand an English winter now. At that moment, another man joined us on the veranda, and Lawson sank into a moody silence. It's about time for a drain, said the newcomer. Who'll have a drop of scotch with me, Lawson? Lawson seemed to arise from a distant world. He got up. Let's go down to the bar, he said. When he left me, I remained with a more kindly feeling towards him that I should have expected. He puzzled and interested me. And a few days later, I met his wife. I knew they had been married for five or six years, and I was surprised to see that she was still extremely young. When he married her, she could not have been more than sixteen. She was adorably pretty. She was no darker than a Spaniard, small and very beautifully made, and tiny hands and feet in a slight, lithe figure. Her features were lovely, but I think what struck me most was the delicacy of her appearance. The half-caste, as a rule, have a certain coarseness. They seem a little roughly formed, but she had an exquisite daintiness which took your breath away. There was something extremely civilised about her, so that it surprised you to see her in those surroundings, and you thought of those famous beauties who had set all the world talking at the court of the Emperor Napoleon III. Though she wore but a muslin frock and a straw hat, she wore them with an elegance that suggested the woman of fashion. She must have been ravishing when Lawson first saw her. He had lately come out from England to manage the local branch of an English bank, and, reaching Samoa at the beginning of the dry season, he had taken a room at the hotel. He quickly made the acquaintance of all and sundry. The life of the island is pleasant and easy. He enjoyed the long idle talks in the lounge of the hotel, and the gay evenings at the English club when a group of fellows would play pool. He liked Apia straggling along the edge of the lagoon, with its stores and bungalows and its native village. Then there were weekends when he would ride over to the house of one planter or another and spend a couple of nights on the hills. He had never before known freedom or leisure, and he was intoxicated by the sunshine. When he rode through the bush, his head reeled a little at the beauty that surrounded him. The country was indescribably fertile. In parts the forest was still virgin, a tangle of strange trees, luxuriant undergrowth and vine. It gave an impression that was mysterious and troubling. But the spot that entranced him was a pool a mile or two away from Apia, to which in the evenings he often went to bathe. There was a little river that bubbled over the rocks in a swift stream, and then, after forming the deep pool, ran on, shallow and crystalline, past a fort made by great stones, where the natives came sometimes to bathe or to wash their clothes. The coconut trees, with their frivolous elegance, grew thickly on the banks, all clad with trailing plants, and they were reflected in the green water. It was just such a scene as you might see in Devonshire among the hills, and yet with a difference, for it had a tropical richness, a passion, a scented languor, which seemed to melt the heart. The water was fresh, but not cold, and it was delicious after the heat of the day. To bathe there refreshed not only the body, but the soul. At the hour when Lawson went, there was not a soul, and he lingered for a long time, now floating idly in the water, now drying himself in the evening sun, enjoying the solitude and the friendly silence. 
He did not regret London then, nor the life that he had abandoned, for life as it was seemed complete and exquisite. It was here that he first saw Ethel. Occupied too late by letters which had to be finished for the monthly sailing of the boat next day, he rode down one evening to the pool when the light was almost failing. He tied up his horse and sauntered to the bank. A girl was sitting there. She glanced round as he came and noiselessly slid into the water. She vanished like a naiad startled by the approach of a mortal. He was surprised and amused. He wondered where she had hidden herself. He swam downstream and presently saw her sitting on a rock. She looked at him with uncurious eyes. He called out a greeting in Samoan. Talofa. She answered him, suddenly smiling, and then let herself into the water again. She swam easily and her hair spread out behind her. He watched her cross the pool and climb out on the bank. Like all the natives, she bathed in a mother hubbard, and the water had made it cling to her slight body. She wrung out her hair, and as she stood there unconcerned, she looked more like Eva, like a wild creature of the water or the woods. He saw now that she was half cast. He swam towards her, and getting out, addressed her in English. You're having a late swim. She shook back her hair, and then let it spread over her shoulders in luxuriant curls. I like it when I'm alone, she said. So do I. She laughed with the childlike frankness of the native. She slipped a dry mother hubbard over her head and letting down the wet one, stepped out of it. She wrung it out and was ready to go. She paused a moment irresolutely and then sauntered off. The night fell suddenly. Lawson went back to the hotel and describing her to the men who were in the lounge shaking dice for drinks, soon discovered who she was. Her father was a Norwegian called Brefald, who was often to be seen in the bar of the hotel metropole, drinking rum and water. He was a little old man, knotted and gnarled like an ancient tree, who had come out to the islands forty years before as mate of a sailing vessel. He had been a blacksmith, a trader, a planter, and at one time fairly well-to-do, but ruined by the great hurricane of the nineties, he had now nothing to live on but a small plantation of coconut trees. He had had four native wives, and, as he told you with a cracked chuckle, more children than he could count. But some had died and some had gone out into the world, so that now the only one left at home was Ethel. She's a peach, said Nelson, supercargo of the Moana. I've given her the glad eye once or twice, but I guess there's nothing doing. Oh, Brevald's not that sort of a fool, Sonny. Put in another, a man called Miller. He wants a son-in-law who's prepared to give him in comfort for the rest of his life. It was distasteful to Lawson that they should speak of the girl in that fashion. He made a remark about the departing mail and so distracted their attention. But next evening he went again to the pool. Ethel was there, and the mystery of the sunset, the deep silence of the water, the lithe grace of the coconut trees, added to her beauty, giving it a profundity, a magic, which stirred the heart to unknown emotions. For some reason that time he had the whim not to speak to her. She took no notice of him. 
She did not even glance in his direction to swarm about the green pool. She dived. She rested on the bank, as though she were quite alone. He had a queer feeling that he was invisible. Scraps of poetry, half forgotten, floated across his memory, and vague recollections of the Greeks he had negligently studied in his school days. When she had changed her wet clothes for dry ones and sauntered away, he found a scarlet hibiscus where she had been. It was a flower that she had worn in her hair when she came to bathe, and having taken it out on getting into the water, had forgotten or not cared to put in again. He took it in his hands and looked at it with a singular emotion. He had an instinct to keep it, but his sentimentality irritated him, and he flung it away. It gave him quite a little pang to see it float down the stream. He wondered what strangeness it was in her nature that urged her to go down to this hidden pool when there was no likelihood that anyone should be there. The natives of the islands are devoted to the water. They bathe somewhere or other every day, once always, and often twice. But they bathe in bands, laughing and joyous, a whole family together. And you often saw a group of girls, dappled by the sun shining through the trees, with the half-castes among them, splashing about the shallows of the stream. It looked as though there were in this pool some secret which attracted Ethel against her will. Now the night had fallen, mysterious and silent, and he let himself down in the water softly, in order to make no sound and swam lazily in the warm darkness. The water seemed fragrant still from her slender body. He rode back to the town under the starry sky. He felt at peace with the world. Now he went every evening to the pool, and every evening he saw Ethel. Presently he overcame her timidity. She became playful and friendly. They sat together on the rocks above the pool, where the water ran fast and lay side by side on the edge that overlooked it, watching the gathering dusk envelop it with mystery. It was inevitable that their meetings should become known. In the South Seas, everyone seems to know everyone's business. And he was subjected to much rude chaff by the men at the hotel. He smiled and let them talk. It was not even worthwhile to deny their coarse suggestions. His feelings were absolutely pure. He loved Ethel as a poet might love the moon. He thought of her not as a woman, but as something not of this earth. She was the spirit of the poor. One day at the hotel, passing through the bar, he saw that old Brevald, as ever, in his shabby blue overalls, was standing there. Because he was Ethel's father, he had a desire to speak to him, so he went in nodded and ordering his own drink casually turned and invited the old man to have one with him they chatted for a few minutes of local affairs and lawson was uneasily conscious that the norwegian was scrutinizing him with sly blue eyes his manner was not agreeable it was sycophantic and yet behind the cringing air of an old man who had been worsted in his struggle with fate was a shadow of old truculence Larson remembered that he had once been captain of a schooner engaged in the slave trade, black birder they call it in the Pacific, and he had a large hernia in the chest which was the result of a wound received in a scrap with Solomon Islanders. 
The bell rang for luncheon. Well, I must be off, said Lawson. Why don't you come along to my place one time, said Brevald, in his wheezy voice. It's not very grand, but you'll be welcome, you know, Ethel. I'll come with pleasure. Sunday afternoon's the best time. Brevald's bungalow, shabby and bedraggled, stood among the coconut trees of the plantation, a little away from the main road that ran up to Vilima. Immediately around it grew huge plantains, with their tattered leaves, and they had the tragic beauty of a lovely woman in rags. Everything was slovenly and neglected, little black pigs, thin and high-backed, rooted about, and chickens clucked noisily as they picked at the refuse scattered here and there. Three or four natives were lounging about the veranda. When Lawson asked for Brevald, the old man's cracked voice called out to him, and he found him in the sitting-room smoking an old briar pipe. "'Sit down and make yourself at home,' he said. Ethel's just titivating. She came in. She wore a blouse and skirt, and her hair was done in the European fashion. Although she had not the wild, timid grace of the girl who came down every evening to the pool, she seemed now more unusual and consequently more approachable. She shook hands with Lawson. It was the first time he had touched her hand. I hope you have a cup of tea with us, she said. He knew she had been at a mission school, and he was amused, and at the same time touched by the company manners she was putting on for his benefit. Tea was already set out on the table, and in a minute, old Brevald's fourth wife brought in the teapot. She was a handsome native, no longer very young, and she spoke but a few words of English. She smiled and smiled. Tea was rather a solemn meal, with a great deal of bread and butter and a variety of very sweet cakes, and the conversation was formal. Then the wrinkled old woman came in softly. That's Ethel's granny, said old Brevald, noisily, speeding on the floor. She sat on the edge of a chair, uncomfortably, so that you saw it was unusual for her, and she would have been more at ease on the ground, and remained silently staring at Lawson with fixed shining eyes in the kitchen behind the bungalow someone began to play the concertina and two or three voices were raised in a hymn but they sang for the pleasure of the sons rather than from piety when lawson walked back to the hotel he was strangely happy he was touched by the haggotty piggledy way in which those people lived and in the smiling good nature of mrs brevald in the little norwegian fantastic career and in the shining mysterious eyes of the old grandmother he found something unusual and fascinating it was a more natural life than any he had known it was nearer to the friendly fertile earth Civilization repelled him at that moment, and by mere contact with these creatures of a more primitive nature, he felt a greater freedom. He saw himself rid of the hotel, which already was beginning to irk him, settled in a little bungalow of his own, trim and white, in front of the sea, so that he had before his eyes always the multicoloured variety of the lagoon. He loved the beautiful island. London and England meant nothing to him any more. He was content to spend the rest of his days in that forgotten spot, rich in the best of the world's goods, love and happiness. He made up his mind that whatever the obstacles, nothing should prevent him from marrying Ethel. But there were no obstacles. He was always welcome at the Brevald's house. 
The old man was ingratiating, and Mrs. Brevald smiled without ceasing. He had brief glimpses of natives who seemed somehow to belong to the establishment, and once he found a tall youth in a lava lava, his body tattooed, his hair white with lime, sitting with Brevald, and was told he was Mrs. Brevald's brother's son. But for the most part, they kept out of his way. Ethel was delightful with him, delighting her eyes when she saw him filled him with ecstasy. She was charming and naive. He listened enraptured when she told him of the mission school at which she was educated, and of the sisters. She went with her to the cinema which was given once a fortnight, and danced with her at the dance which followed it. They came from all parts of the island for this, since gaiety is a few in Upperloo, and you saw there all the society of the place, the white ladies keeping a good deal to themselves, the half-caste very elegant in American clothes, the natives, strings of dark girls in white mother hubbards and young men in unaccustomed ducks and white shoes. It was all very smart and gay. Ethel was pleased to show her friends the white admirer who did not leave her side. The rumour was soon spread that he meant to marry her, and her friends looked at her with envy. It was a great thing for a half-caste to get the white man to marry her. Even the less regular relation was better than nothing, but one could never tell what it would lead to. In Lawson's position as manager of the bank made him one of the catches of the island. If he had not been so absorbed in Ethel, he would have noticed that many eyes were fixed on him curiously, and he would have seen the glances of the white ladies and noticed how they put their heads together and gossiped. Afterwards, when the men who lived at the hotel were having a whiskey before turning in, Nelson burst out with, Say, they say Lawson's going to marry that girl. It's a damned fool, then, said Miller. Miller was a German-American, who had changed his name from Müller, a big man, fat and bald-headed, with a round, clean-shaven face. He wore large gold-rimmed spectacles, which gave him a benign look, and his ducks were always clean and white. He was a heavy drinker, invariably ready to stay up all night with the boys, but he never got drunk. He was jolly and affable, but very shrilled. Nothing interfered with his business, he represented a firm in San Francisco, jobbers of the goods sold in the islands, calico, machinery and what not, and his good fellowship was part of his stock in trade. You don't know what he's up against, said Nelson. Someone ought to be him wise. If you take my advice, you won't interfere with what don't concern you, said Miller. When a man's up made up his mind to make a fool of himself, there's nothing like letting him. I'm all for having a good time with the girls out here, but when it comes to marrying them, this child ain't taking any, I tell you the world. Chaplin was there, and now he had his say. I've seen a lot of fellows do it, and it's no good. You ought to have a talk with him, Chaplin, said Nelson. You know him better than anyone else does. My advice to Chaplin is to leave it alone, said Miller. Even in those days Lawson was not popular, and really no one took enough interest in him to bother. Mrs. Chaplin talked it over with two or three of the white ladies, but they contented themselves with saying that it was a pity, and when he told her definitely that he was going to be married, it seemed too late to do anything. For a year Lawson was happy. He took a bungalow at the pond of the bay round which Apia is built, 
on the borders of a native village. It nestled charmingly among the coconut trees and faced the passionate blue of the Pacific. Ethel was lovely as she went about the little house, lithe and graceful like some young animal of the woods, and she was gay. They laughed a great deal. They talked nonsense. Sometimes one or two of the men at the hotel would come over and spend the evening, and often on a Sunday they would go for a day to some planter who had married a native. Now and then, one or other of the half-caste traders who had a store in Apia would give a party and they went to it. The half-caste treated Lawson quite differently now. His marriage had made him one of themselves and they called him Bertie. They put their arms through his and smacked him on the back. He liked to see Ethel at these gatherings. Her eyes shone and she laughed. It did him good to see her radiant happiness. Sometimes Ethel's relations would come to the bungalow. Old Bravald, of course, and her mother, but cousins too, vague native women in Mother Hubbards and men and boys in Lava Lavas, with their hair dyed red and their bodies elaborately tattooed. He would find them sitting there when he got back from the bank. He laughed indulgently. Don't let them eat us out of her than home, he said. They're my own family. I can't help doing something for them when they ask me. He knew that when a white man marries a native or a half-caste, he must expect her relations to look upon him as a gold mine. He took Ethel's face in his hands and kissed her red lips. Perhaps he could not expect her to understand that the salary which had amply sufficed for a bachelor must be managed with some care when he had to support a wife in the house. Then Ethel was delivered of a son. It was when Lawson first held the child in his arms that a sudden pang shot through his heart. He had not expected it to be so dark. After all, he had but a fourth part of native blood. There was no reason, really, why it should not look just like an English baby. But huddled together in his arms, sallow, his head covered already with black hair, with huge black eyes, he might have been a native child, since his marriage he had been ignored by the white ladies of the colony, when he came across men in whose houses he had been accustomed to die as a bachelor, they were a little self-conscious with him, and they sought to cover their embarrassment by an exaggerated cordiality. Mrs. Lawson, well, they would say, you're a lucky fellow, damned pretty girl. But if they were with their wives and met him and Ethel, they would feel it awkward when their wives gave Ethel a patronizing nod. Lawson had laughed. They're as dull as ditch water, the whole gang of them, he said. It's not going to disturb my nice rest if they don't ask me to their dirty parties. But now it irked him a little. The little dark baby screwed up his face. That was his son. He thought of the half-caste children at Apia. They had an unhealthy look, sallow and pale, and they were odiously precocious. He had seen them on the boat going to school in New Zealand, and a school had to be chosen which took children with native blood in them. They were huddled together, brazen and yet timid, with traits which set them apart strangely from white people. They spoke the native language among themselves, and when they grew up, the men accepted smaller salaries because of their native blood. Girls might marry a white man, but boys had no chance. They must marry a half-caste like themselves or a native. 
Lawson made up his mind passionately that he would take his son away from the humiliation of such a life, at whatever cost he must get back to Europe. And when he went in to see Ethel, frail and lovely in her bed, surrounded by native women, his determination was strengthened. If he took her away among his own people, she would belong more completely to him. He loved her so passionately. He wanted her to be one soul and one body with him. And he was conscious that here, with those deep roots attaching her to the native life, she would always keep something from him. He went to work quietly, urged by an obscure instinct of secrecy, and wrote to a cousin who was partner in a shipping firm in Aberdeen, saying that his health, on account of which, like so many more, he had come out to the islands, was so much better, there seemed no reason why he should not return to Europe. He asked him to use what influence he could to get him a job, no matter how poorly paid, on the side, why the climate's particularly suitable to such as suffered from disease of the lungs. It takes five or six weeks for letters to get from Aberdeen to Samoa, and several had to be exchanged. He had plenty of time to prepare Ethel. She was as delighted as a child. He was amused to see how she boasted to her friends that she was going to England. It was a step up for her. She would be quite English there, and she was excited and interest the approaching departure gave her when at length a cable came offering him a post in a bank in Kincardineshire. She was beside herself with joy. When the long journey over, they were settled in the little Scots town with his granite houses. Lawson realized how much it meant to him to live once more among his own people. He looked back on the three years he had spent in Apia as exile, and returned to the life that seemed the only normal one, with a sigh of relief. It was good to play golf once more, and to fish, to fish properly. There was poor fun in the Pacific when you just threw in your line and pulled out one big sluggish fish after another from the crowded sea. And it was good to see a paper every day with that day's news and to meet men and women of your own sort, people you could talk to. And it was good to eat meat that was not frozen and to drink milk that was not canned. They were thrown upon their own resources much more than in the Pacific, and he was glad to have Ethel exclusively to himself. After two years of marriage, he loved her more devotedly than ever. He could hardly bear her out of his sight, and the need in him grew urgent for a more intimate communion between them. But it was strange that after the first excitement of arrival, she seemed to take less interest in the new life than he expected. She did not accustom herself to her surroundings. She was a little lethargic. As the fine autumn darkens into winter, she complains of the cold. She lay half the morning in bed, and the rest of the day on the sofa, reading novels sometimes, but more often doing nothing. She looked pinched. Never mind, darling, he said. You get used to it very soon and wait till the summer comes. It can be almost as hot as in Apia. He felt better and stronger than he had done for years. The carelessness with which she managed the house had not mattered in Samoa, but here it was out of place. When anyone came, he did not want the place to look untidy, and laughing, chaffing Ethel a little, he set about putting things in order. Ethel watched him indolently. 
She spent long hours playing with her son. She talked to him in the baby language of her own country. To distract her, Lawson bestirred himself to make friends among the neighbours, and now and then they went to little parties where the ladies sang drawing-room ballads and the men beamed in silent good nature. Ethel was shy. She seemed to sit apart. Sometimes Lawson, seized with a sudden anxiety, would ask her if she was happy. Yes, I'm quite happy, she answered, but her eyes were veiled by some thought he could not guess. She seemed to withdraw into herself so that he was conscious that he knew no more of her than when he had first seen her bathing in the pool. He had an uneasy feeling that she was concealing something from him, and because he adored her it tortured him. You don't regret up here, do you? he asked her once. Oh, no, I think it's very nice here. An obscure misgiving drove him to make disparaging remarks about the islands and the people there. She smiled and did not answer. Very rarely she received a bundle of letters from Samoa, and then she went about for a day or two with a set, pale face. Nothing would induce me ever to go back there, he said once. It's no place for a white man. But he grew conscious that sometimes, when he was away, Ethel cried. In Apia she had been talkative, chatting volubly about all the little details of their common life, the gossip of the place, but now she gradually became silent, and though he increased his efforts to amuse her, she remained listless. It seemed to him that her recollections of the old life were drawing her away from him and he was madly jealous of the island and of the sea, of Brevald, and all the dark-skinned people, whom he remembered now with horror. When she spoke of Samoa, he was bitter and satirical. One evening late in the spring, when the birch trees were bursting into leaf, coming home from a round of golf, he found her not as usual lying on the sofa, but at the window, standing. She had evidently been waiting for his return, she addressed him the moment he came into the room. To his amazement, she spoke in Samoan. I can't stand it. I can't live here any more. I hate it. I hate it. For God's sake, speak in a civilized language, he said irritably. She went up to him and clasped her arms around his body awkwardly, with a gesture that had in it something barbaric. Let's go away from here. Let's go back to Samoa. If you make me stay here, I shall die. I want to go home. Her passion broke suddenly and she burst into tears. His anger vanished and he drew her down on his knees. He explained to her that it was impossible for him to throw up his job, which after all meant his bread and butter. His place in Apia was long since filled. He had nothing to go back to there. He tried to put it to her reasonably, the inconveniences of life there, the humiliations which they must be exposed, and the bitterness it must cause their son. Scotland's wonderful for education and that sort of thing. Schools are good and cheap, and he can go to the university in Aberdeen. I'll make a real Scot of him. They had called him Andrew. Lawson wanted him to become a doctor, would marry a white woman. I'm not ashamed of being half-native, Ethel said sullenly. Of course not, darling. There's nothing to be ashamed of. With her soft cheek against his, he felt incredibly weak. End of section 7